It's good to be with you again. I know Steve was here this morning and it works very nicely for us to uh, swap places in our church and also then swap places here with you. So the last time I was here was uh, the summer and the door was open. It was all very hot for us, but uh, it's nice. It's a little bit uh, cooler this evening. And this evening we're going to look at a passage from the book of James, as you can see in your bulletin. James, as I'm sure you know very well, is a book about living faith. Through five chapters of his letter, James is concerned to show us true faith in Jesus makes a difference to our lives. It makes a difference to every single part of our lives. James says, if it doesn't, then our faith is dead. And the passage we're going to look at this evening, James wants us to see that true living faith in Jesus makes a difference, particularly to the place we give to God in our lives. Now that might sound so obvious it's not even worth saying, but James is going to show us two ways we can be tempted to act like we are God, even as Christians. He's going to highlight two areas of life where we might try to put ourselves in God's place, even as Christians. And as he deals with both of these, James' message to us is, let God be God. We're going to pick up in chapter 4, verse 11, and we'll read down to the end of the chapter in verse 17. I'm using the NIV, but as we go through, I'll point out a couple of spots uh, where the ESV differs, if that's what you happen to be using. Let's read this. Chapter 4, verse 11. James says, Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. This is God's word, and it calls us to let God be God in the lives of other Christians, and let God be God of your own plans. Two areas where you and I can be tempted to try and not let God be God. I have no special agenda in choosing this passage for this evening, I certainly haven't been asked to preach on this passage. It just seems like a passage that is relevant for all of us all of the time. 
So first, in verses 11 and 12 of this passage, James says, let God be God in the lives of other Christians. Verse 1 starts, brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. The word translated slander here in my NIV is the same word that's translated speak against in the second half of the verse. And if you're using the ESV, you can see that very clearly. So what does James have in mind when he says, do not speak against a brother or sister in Christ? Does he mean there's no place for challenging one another or rebuking one another? Well, clearly that is not what James means. And if we were reading right through his letter from start to finish, we would know that because he's just given these Christians a pretty robust rebuke In verse 4 of this chapter, in verse 4, he called them adulterous people. James is not against rebuke. And plenty of other places in the New Testament call us to spur one another on as Christians. And sometimes giving one another a spur on means giving a word of challenge or rebuke. So if James isn't forbidding us to challenge or even rebuke one another, what is he ruling out here? He's talking about arrogant criticism of others. It might be arrogant criticism to their face or behind their back. Maybe for the majority of us, the temptation will be to do it behind the person's back. But either way, James is talking about passing judgment on our brothers and sisters. So this is not about those times when someone has obviously wronged you and you need to go and sort it out with them as scripture tells you to. Nor is this about those times when someone in the church is living in obvious sin that needs to be repented of but they refuse to repent. The New Testament is clear. In those situations, the church is called to take action together to deal with the situation. But what James is talking about here is different. This is about situations where we have not investigated the situation clearly and uncovered some genuine sin. We've just seen or we've heard something we didn't like. We take it upon ourselves to pass judgment on the person we saw or heard. We decide they're silly We decide they don't care about Jesus, maybe. We decide they're not committed to the church. Or they're being deliberately difficult. And we know, because we heard them say this, or we saw them do that. John Calvin often sums things up in a very helpful way. And I've paraphrased his words a little bit here. But this is how he explains what James is talking about. Calvin says... We wish others would live at our own direction. And so we dare to impose a law of life upon our brothers and sisters. We arrogantly hand out judgments on their deeds and words. As if our grim expression was to be their law. We blandly condemn anything that displeases our eyes. You know the kind of thing we're talking about, I'm sure. Why do they parent their children like that? That's not the way. 
How can they let their kids eat that stuff? Why did they buy their kids that? Why does he think he can't do that on a Sunday? Why doesn't he loosen up a bit? Why did they come up with that way of caring for her parents? That's not going to work. I can't stand the way he swaggers about like he owns the place. He doesn't do half as much for the church as I do. He's too loud. It's embarrassing. Or she's too quiet and timid. It's so frustrating. We wish others would live at our own direction. And so we dare to impose a law of life upon our brothers and sisters. We arrogantly hand out judgments on their deeds and words. So just to make sure we're clear on this, are we called to spur one another on towards love and good deeds? Yes, we are. If, for example, a brother or sister begins to withdraw from the fellowship, are we to be concerned about that situation? Are we to try and reach out to them? Yes, we are. In chapter 5 of this letter, James will encourage us to try and bring back those who wander from the truth. He will encourage us to try and turn sinners from the error of their way. And is the church called to deal with those who persevere in unrepented sin? Are we to take action, even being willing to take the most drastic action of removing them from the fellowship? Yes, we are. But that's not what this is about. This is about the reality that we are all different. And we see things differently. And when it comes to the many big and small decisions in life, where there are various non-sinful choices we could make, then we are going to make different choices as God's people. And we'll have different opinions about the choices others make. We'll tend to think those choices are wise if they agree with what we would choose, and less wise if they differ from what we would choose. But thank God that's okay. It's okay that we're different. We don't have to try and make our brothers and sisters in our image. God is at work making them into the image of his son Jesus, which is a far better image for them to be made into. So if you're a Christian and a brother or sister asks for your opinion, if they want to know what you think would be wise in their situation, by all means tell them. But otherwise, let them work it out with God. And let's not give in to the temptation to question other people's motives. Let's not assume they're being careless or intentionally disruptive or willfully difficult. Let's not assume they're trying to bring up their kids badly. Or that they're trying to make foolish decisions instead of wise ones. Some time ago I read this. Believe the best about someone until they make it impossible to do so. Believe the best about someone until they make it impossible to do so. That's helpful. I think that's in line with what James is telling us here. Assume your brothers and sisters in Christ do love their Savior. Assume they do want to live for him. They do want to contribute to the church. And acknowledge that you can't know all there is to know about their heart and their motivations. Don't be arrogant and judgmental in your attitude to them 
and your words to them are your words about them behind their back. Believe the best about them until they make it impossible to do so. Until it's clear and obvious they're rebelling against Christ or doing harm to the church. And just to emphasize again, this is not a call to butt out of each other's lives or to keep our distance from one another or to avoid discussing what's going on in each other's lives. This is not a license to ignore genuine warning signs in the life of a brother or sister. But this is a call to let God be God in the life of that brother or sister. They answer to him, and so do you. So do I. Look again in the middle of verse 11. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them, speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? What does James mean in verse 11 when he says, speaking against a brother or sister is speaking against the law and judging the law? Well, of course, he means the Old Testament law. Earlier in this letter, James quoted the law from Leviticus chapter 19. Love your neighbor as yourself. That was back in chapter 2. In that chapter of Leviticus, in Leviticus 19, two verses back from the verse James has quoted, we read, do not go about spreading slander. So I think it's likely those are the specific bits of the law James has in mind here. If we speak against a brother or sister in the way we've just been talking about, then we are not loving them, and we are speaking against the law that tells us to love them, and that tells us not to speak against them. And by doing that, James says, we're not keeping the law, we're judging it. We're deciding that we know better than the law, which is actually deciding we know better than God who gave the law. We're trying to be God in the situation. Trying to impose our own personal law of life on that brother or sister. Instead, James is saying, we should focus on our own responsibility to obey God. And let him be God in our life. One of the great challenges of the Christian life is to care deeply about one another and be genuinely involved in one another's lives, and at the same time, to let each other be different, and make different decisions than we would. We love to say about other people, don't we, if I were him, I would do this. But in fact, if you were him, you would do what he's doing, because you'd be him. As God's people, we are bound together with deep bonds of fellowship. We must treat each other as family, not as strangers. And we must also let each of our brothers and sisters be who they are before God. With all of their individuality, with all of their oddness as we see it, and all the things we think we'd do differently if we were them. 
Is that a challenge? Of course. Do we need great wisdom from God to get it right? Of course. But that is our calling. And if you happen to be a newer Christian, it might seem very odd that other Christians are supposed to be involved in your life. That's a biblical expectation you will need to adjust to. But if you've been a Christian a bit longer, the adjustment for you might be learning to dial back a bit. To ease up and get comfortable with people being different from you. And doing things differently from you. James says, let God be God in the lives of other Christians and let God be God of your own plans. Let God be God of your own plans. Look at verse 13. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Just like we did with the previous verses, we have to be clear about what James is and is not saying here. James is not telling us that planning is a bad thing. The Bible repeatedly calls you and I to be good stewards of our time and our resources. That requires careful planning. Just read the Apostle Paul's letters in the New Testament and notice how often Paul talks about his carefully worked out travel plans as he toured around planting new churches and revisiting established churches. There's nothing glorious about you and I wasting our time. There's nothing glorious about trying to run a business without a business plan. It's good to set goals and targets for our work. It's good to be intentional in dealing with our finances and lots of other things in our lives. If you fail to plan, you plan to fail. The Bible affirms that for us. But what James is targeting here is the kind of self-confident, self-assured planning that forgets how little control we have over our future. We saw that in Luke 12 when we read the parable of the rich fool earlier. And surely, if the last couple of years have shown us anything, they have shown us this. How little control we have over our future. How many business plans and holiday plans and wedding plans and even funeral plans have been upended during the last couple of years. How many people are having their plans upended right now with the current financial situation and with the war in Ukraine? And more generally, I've lost count personally of the number of people I know who have spent years planning for their awesome retirement and fantasizing about their awesome retirement only to have their fantasy shredded either because their health took a nosedive or their investments got wiped out on the eve of their retirement or their family self-destructed and they had to ditch the retirement plan and raise their grandkids instead. Planning is good, James says, but self-confident planning is foolish. As God's people were to plan carefully 
and then hold our plans very, very lightly. Because as James says in verse 14, we don't even know what will happen tomorrow. Our life on this earth is like a mist. It's like smoke. Megan likes to burn scented candles in our house. And when you blow out one of those candles at the end of the evening, how long does the smoke last for? Well, if you have the guts to lick your finger and snuff out the wick, then there's no smoke at all. But if you blow it out like me, how long does that smoke stay swirling around in the air? Five seconds, maybe? Ten seconds at the most? James says this present life is like that. It's here one minute and just gone the next. And so how foolish to be confident and assured about our plans for this life. The problem many people have is that they only plan for this life. They do nothing to prepare for the eternity beyond this life. Now, as Christians, we're in the blessed position of knowing what eternity holds for us. We can have absolute confidence about that. Because God has told us. He has promised eternal glory for those who trust in Christ and follow him. What God hasn't told us is what is in store for us tomorrow. Or even what's in store for us on our way home from church this evening. But we can so easily forget that and we can set our hearts on what we have planned for this evening. Or for tomorrow. Or for our retirement. I remember talking to a Christian once about a particular position he had applied for, and he seemed so dead set on it that I asked him, if you don't get this position, could you live with that? His answer was, no, I couldn't live with that. Isn't that exactly the kind of idolatrous attachment to our plans James is warning us against here? So let's ask ourselves, is there some plan I am so fixed on that I feel I couldn't live with it not coming into effect? Is there a goal that I've set, an ambition I have, that I couldn't bear to miss out on? If there is, then we may be getting into the territory James is dealing with here. We may be in danger of forgetting or living in denial of the truth that God holds our future. It's in his sovereign hands, not ours. And God has not promised to fulfill all the plans we have for ourselves. He has no obligation to do that. He is God, after all. He's committed to doing what's best not doing what you or I think is best. God says in Scripture, I know the plans I have for you, and I will fulfill those plans. But your own plans, well, there are no guarantees about those. And so, verse 15, 
Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. Notice how James still takes it for granted. We will make plans. But he's showing we're to plan with God's sovereign control in mind. That is the difference between an arrogant scheme and a God-honoring scheme. A God-honoring scheme gives God full permission to revise the plans we have made. Or even tear them up completely and replace them with something totally different. Instead of boasting in our own great planning, the Bible calls us to boast in God's superior wisdom. And it's important for us to see we haven't got this covered just by training ourselves to say, Lord willing, all the time. That can become like a little tick we develop. Anytime we talk about what we're doing tomorrow, we drop in the words, Lord willing. But that loses its effectiveness if it becomes automatic and thoughtless, just something we say. What this is about is not just saying if it's the Lord's will, we'll do this or that. This is about living with a true openness to God changing our plans. Truly accepting his sovereign authority. And learning to praise him for the fact that he holds our future in his hands. Because he does know better. Always. Even when you and I have put all of our little brain power into coming up with our very best plan. Even then, God knows far, far better. And so if our great little plan falls by the wayside to be replaced by his totally different plan, that's okay. In fact, it's more than okay because his plans are always best even when they upend our plans. Let God be God of your own plans. So far, James has related that to God's sovereignty. But right at the end, he adds another angle to this. When it comes to your own plans, let God be God because he is sovereign, as we've seen, and because he has shown us what is good. If verses 13 to 16 are about holding lightly to the plans we make, here at the end, verse 17 is about making our plans in accordance with God's word. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. In other words, just because we have accepted that God has a right to change our plans, that doesn't mean we can plan any old way we want. As a Christian, I can't approach life with the attitude of, I have an entirely blank slate to work with here. We've been making the point that we don't know God's will for the time we have ahead of us in this life. But in the Bible, God has explained his will for the way we plan to use the time we have. So if we have plans that are based to any degree on selfishness or greed or deceit or getting our own back, then we don't plow ahead with them, saying God can change them if he wants, but until then I'm going for them. 
No, as we make our plans, we evaluate them according to God's will set out in his written word. And if the plans we're coming up with aren't in line with what the Bible tells us of God's will, then we don't wait for God to change those plans. We tear them up ourselves and we start over. As Christians, we know there are certain priorities we ought to have. Making time to join regularly for worship with our brothers and sisters. And serving in the church. Using our God-given gifts to help share the good news. Sharing what we have with others through giving. We know those are priorities we must have as Christians. And so we incorporate those into our plans, don't we? That too is part of letting God be God of our plans. We can't say, I have no time to spare for what the Bible calls me to because I've already made all these other plans. No, we start with God's priorities. We plan around those rather than starting with other priorities and saying, sorry God, I have no space left for your priorities. James says, if we know what we ought to do, if we know the godly priorities that ought to be included in our personal plans, but we don't put those godly priorities in, that's not just bad planning, it's sin. Yes, our lives are all different. We all go through stages, seasons of life. In some seasons, we have more disposable time than others. Some stages we may have more disposable income. For some of our years, we may have lots of energy we can use for God's glory. For some of our years, we may have hard-won wisdom we can use for his glory. But all of us, whatever resources we have, we must plan to use them for what is good. Not to build our own little kingdom, but to give our lives for God's kingdom. And then, having planned to do what is good, yes, then we hold those plans lightly, knowing God may well change them. When it comes to your own plans, let God be God because he is sovereign and because he has shown us what is good. And do you see how this helps us not to abuse what James said back in verses 11 and 12? There he said, our brothers and sisters in Christ answer to God, we are not their lawgiver. But now can you see if you or I are tempted to try and exploit that for our own situations, to try to live selfishly and get away with it by telling others to leave us alone and mind their own business. Look at verses 11 and 12, we might say. If we do that, here in the final verse, James reminds us we can't do that. I need to mind my own business with God. Verses 11 and 12 do not give me license to tell other Christians to back off so I can live how I like. Verse 7 says to me, you can't live how you like. As a child of God, your great responsibility is to do what God likes. To make your plans and build your life around his will, not your own. 
Other Christians aren't the lawgiver in your life, but God is. And the beauty of this is, this is not only our great responsibility, it is also our privilege. Because God's will, shown to us in his word, is truly and perfectly good. That's how the NIV translates the word in verse 17. The ESV says, it is right, which is true. But the word also has the sense of being excellent. There are no better plans we could have for our lives than plans made in accordance with God's will. His will is excellent, good. There's no better way to spend the days and years of our lives than in pursuing obedience to his will. We can only be blessed. Our peace and joy can only increase as we learn to let God be God in every part of our lives. So before we sing our last hymn, why don't we just take a moment, quietly and personally, to make that commitment to God in prayer, just where we're sitting. Maybe to let God be God in some plan that we're making at the moment. As I said, I don't know your situations. But there may be something that comes to mind, maybe a plan about your finances or about your time, some decision you're making about your future. Maybe some ambition you've been nurturing for years. Just take a moment of quietness in God's presence and ask, what would it mean to let God be God of that ambition or that plan?